0: Hello, good day, and welcome. to our podcast, "What Freaks Out Founders," and we're a little different than the usual startup hero worship podcast. We want to talk about the fear, the anxiety, the neuroses that can freak out founders of all sizes, all shapes, all descriptions, and honestly, all levels of success. My name is Matt Toner. I'm your host. I come from that space. I know folks in that space, and I know it's not all sunshine and roses with us to help make this happen is my producer Mike Rosen and he's going to help us today talk about all those things those neuroses that founders will recognize in themselves what they're trying to confront what they're trying to overcome and in some cases what they're trying to harness so stay tuned enjoy the guests they are amazing and they're going to unpack their wisdom their learnings and the things that frighten them so stay tuned this is what freaks out founders Uh I'm not a risk-taker, to my mind. I'm not a risk-taker. I live a pretty easygoing life these days. Maybe it wasn't always the case, but I would not put myself at the forefront of people that are out there putting things on the line, in some ways, in some ways, right? Uh, In my youth, I used to do rock climbing, for example. And would I do that this weekend? I would not. However, one thing I learned while doing rock climbing Uh, as a young man is that you can climb quite high and do some things that are quite scary and look at the photos afterwards Take my friends, you're amazed it's you that's way the hell up there. But the way you do that is by maintaining your two hands and your two feet. Three of those things have to be on the rock face at any given time and then you can reach with the fourth. And if you master that method, it's actually quite a safe way to traverse the rock face. And that's what we're talking about today with our guest Stephen Goddard about the idea of when you take risks when you build businesses you may come from a background or a methodology or even a place that seems quite casual or conservative or not risk-taking or whatever but then when you you peel it back just even the tiniest bit you find the wildest risk-taking entrepreneurial boundary-pushing people that could possibly exist but they they do it in such a matter of fact way, even they don't recognize the trail they're blazing. So it's a fascinating way to look at people. And when you see this, you never look at people the same way. You never know who you're talking to. So when we started our conversation with Stephen Goddard, I was not really sure where it was gonna go, full honesty there, but man, it went in a very interesting direction. Stay tuned and enjoy. So joining us today on What Scares Startups is Stephen Goddard, the COO and co-founder of Troj.ai, T-R-O-J.ai, which is an AI solution to help you protect and secure your data from adversarial attacks. Increasingly an important topic nowadays, not just for companies, but for Joe Consumer. And he's joining us from the far Eastern side of the North American shelf. So for our American listeners, if you were to drive up the highway towards the middle of nowhere and you finally get to Maine, keep driving. And then on the other side of the border, you will see St. John, New Brunswick, which is a charming town. I grew up there. And that is where this disruptive and game changing company is headquartered. So, Stephen, thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: So, Stephen, I know that this may sound kind of like a funny first question, but we find with a lot of founders, they'll talk about the usual things that kind of scare them, you know, payroll being a good example, right? Raising money, not raising money, layoffs, that kind of thing. If you were to think about the things that scare you, the things that aren't rational as opposed to rational things, what would that be? Like you're going back to childhood, you know, is it like a spider thing? Is it clowns? Like, you know, what's the first thing you remember kind of keeping you up at night?
1: I remember for a long time, probably until I was getting to 13, 14, and even by the time I was 16, before I managed being afraid of the dark. Really? So, you know, the pretty standard issue I think for lots of kids. And and I'll be honest, I when I think about this, I can't remember why, but it was your kind of standard irrational fear of that unknown and being scared of the dark until I got into high school.
0: Really? So did it did it kind of manifest itself in a sense of you couldn't see what was there, what might be there, or you couldn't find your way out of it or just I mean obviously it's irrational. Yeah. You know, what was no, the it, what was the trigger? Just dark or sudden dark or
1: no it was just Dark. So what I what I remember is growing up and everything from, I can remember little techniques when we were out camping with the Boy Scouts to avoid being in the dark. So, you know, going to bed at night, making sure the door was always open Right. so that there was a whole light on, you know, going camping, making sure you always had that flashlight and that, you know, you had some sort of light source. You know, as a child, you just develop those great techniques to, for me, it was to avoid darkness, because uh, it bothered me. Right. So I, I would just do everything possible to avoid it.
0: Well, this will indicate how much of a city person I've become, uh, much to my family's shock and horror. I went out camping, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, out here in British Columbia, where we're based in Vancouver. And so we went out, as was on the island towards Tufino, properly in the middle of nowhere. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night in the little tent or whatever, and opening my eyes and going, holy, it is Black. Yeah. I can't see a goddamn thing. I mean, it, I've never sort of experienced blackness that black before. It was really kind of something. And, it, you know, in the middle of nowhere, there's no streetlights. There's no background light. You take out your flashlight. And again, it was only showing Blair Witch, Like that yeah, one yeah. narrow area of light. I was going, man, that's a bit of a comeuppance. You live in enough big cities. And I, I guess I have lived in like generally pretty big cities. It's never really dark. There's always yeah. some kind of light, really.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: So do you think it's kind of like a control thing like just the idea like okay now I can't control my environment my environment's kind of you know controlling me in some sense or
1: I I'm not sure uh you know I gave some thought ahead of this trying to figure out what that may have meant I I feel like it's one of those things that, you know, with a bit of time with a psychiatrist, I could probably find out some pretty scary things about what was really going on in my mind back then. But (laughs) I I know less about what it meant at the time, but it is interesting as I thought about it is how it informed me going forward. And it was, you know, I gave into that irrational fear at the time because I was a kid and, and it took some time until I got to into high school before I could think it through. Mm-hmm. But it did start to really inform, uh, I think at an early age, trying to separate a rational fear from things that you should really should be worried about.
0: Interesting. Now, I would think that is a powerfully important piece of DNA for a founder or an innovator or a disruptor nowadays is having that strong internal compass that can say, let's break this down. Am I responding to a real threat signal or am I Responding to a neurotic impulse.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's
0: they don't teach that. They don't teach that in business school. No, you know? like that's no, not they, something in they,
1: the textbooks. They don't, and it plays into when I talk to people about their decision, especially uh, if I'm talking to somebody younger who's thinking about entrepreneurship. I often just ask them, even our staff, to be honest, the team that we've built. One of the interview questions we have is about ambiguity. And I think that it's kind of, for me, a little bit of, you know, two sides of a coin where trying to filter out and get rid of the irrational. So quickly figure out and how do you prioritize those things that you have any semblance of control over is critically important because you simply can't do everything you need to do. So you're always looking to prioritize and then you need to figure out what it is that you can prioritize and you make changes And that always leaves a lot of ambiguity. And so all of that for me is, as I said, when we're interviewing folks for the team, we ask them if they really feel comfortable with ambiguity, because in the startup space, there is so much unknown in every day, every day that we come in, we're not entirely sure how the day is going to shape up. We're never really quite aware of what's going to happen. And uh, so, yeah, dealing with ambiguity, being able to prioritize and being able to strip out some of the irrational concerns that you might have Mm -hmm. uh, and that you want to try and control, you can't.
0: Well, I mean, that sums up really well. I mean, this is a, you're dealing with the unknown on a day-to-day basis or you you come into the work week and you think you've got a game plan. And then by noon on Tuesday, it's completely upside down, right? (laughs) And I, I think that some people find that coming from the corporate world. Especially jarring because at least the predictability of a larger corporate is the pace is more glacial, and so you're going to accelerate more slowly. You're going to decelerate more slowly. You know, you're like the Titanic. You're going to turn left more slowly, turn right more slowly. Whereas with a startup, like it's more like being on a jet ski. You you make the wrong move. Next thing you know, you're splattered, right? Like you're yeah. It's over. And I think some people, it's a dispositional thing. You know, like, oh, yeah. they, they just, they, they need a certainty and other people, they, they need the rush.
1: Well, it, for me, it's, that's interesting only because I, I really did have more of a sort of a first half of my career in that mm-hmm. place. You really know, so, Interesting. You know, I like to try to, you know, I kind of describe myself as a, a reformed investment banker. So I <laughs> came out of banking. I actually left banking and moved into corporate for a while. And it was only about 18 years ago, and that kind of gives away my age because that was halfway through my career. It was about 18 years ago that I started working in the startups and really I only started providing sort of strategic and financial advice to startups here in the region. Mm-hmm. And then started working towards you know a couple of startups, worked for folks doing startups. But for me, there was a contrast, which was I didn't think I was interested, or would even enjoy the environment in a startup. I always, I always thought of myself as someone that was more comfortable in that staid environment where things move slower and you are much more pedantic about your decisions. And turns out, I think I prefer the startup world.
0: Interesting. That is a rather interesting journey because I would, I, I'm not sure many people wind up going that way. I can see people more at the beginning of their career willing to take a chance, especially nowadays yeah. on doing a new venture because. What they're going to lose is they lose the shirt off their back it's not a very nice shirt and the experience they gain is far more interesting than just going to a cubicle at that stage it can really accelerate them going the other way though that is interesting because i've heard many horror stories of people just having that disposition mid-career so instinctively ingrained that it's hard to switch did you think perhaps even that because you move from corporate banking gigs into more consulting with startups and then into startups did that helped you realign your risk profile? Because you had a chance to kind of sit on the sidelines and help coach these companies and say, well, okay, I see what they're dealing with here. I'm helping them get around that corner. So now I've demystified it for myself. I have a more of an intimate understanding than I did previously. And I feel comfortable now taking that last big step. Yeah, As opposed to just jumping directly from a big media company or a big manufacturing company and saying, I have an idea. And you know, two weeks later, you're in a WeWork someplace <laughs> with three teenagers. You're like, what the hell have I done? Well,
1: actually, that does remind me of, uh, I, we went through Techstars as a side note. And, and that's exactly one of the environments we, our first Zoom call. So this was at the end of 2020, mm-hmm. you know, full pandemic and we're part of Techstars. And I'm looking at the cohort of all the other startup founders and I'm realizing that almost all the other co-founders are younger than my oldest daughter. <laughs> and I thought, my, I am in the wrong place among this cohort, but it, 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 you're right. I, the transition was probably gradual enough for me. And it isn't that possibly nuke for my, even for my journey, because I've always, I've always kind of looked for, I try to figure out where I'm going to fit and what I enjoy doing the best. And I, that's probably evolved, but you know, my career started in commercial banking and after a couple of years, I thought, you know, I'd like to do bigger deals. And I went to corporate banking. And then after that, I said, well, I'd really like to do M&A work. And so I navigated my way into investment banking in New York City with uh, with one of the big banks, Barclays Capital. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm tired of this and I want to go and do corporate. And I got tired of being on the corporate side. And I wanted something different. And you're you're right, uh, the way you described it. Is I thought, I'll do consulting and I'll go after that segment of market that, really doesn't have access to the kind of corporate advisory advice that the large enterprises would have. And I thought that was going to be my niche. And I thought that was going to be the end of my career. I thought I would just consult to the end of my days and and I'd be happy doing that. But you're right, as I got closer to some of the entrepreneurs and oddly enough, so one of my first consulting gigs on my own was an ISP that was being sold out west, but the founders were from here in New Brunswick. And so I met them, and they wanted to exit their business, and they wanted to do another tech startup. And so I worked with them to sell the business, and then I worked with them to get their business up and running. And I thought, hey, this is pretty good. I, I'm kind of into it. But oddly enough, they decided they wanted to pivot completely out of technology. they have been doing it for almost 20 years. You know, They are a little bit younger than I was, but they wanted to do something completely different, and they wanted to start a pizzeria and they convinced me to join them in starting a wood-fired pizzeria here in New Brunswick. And so... Good Lord. That, uh,
0: <laughs> they must have been very persuasive. Well, they
1: were. And and I've always, you know, my, my side passion has always been around food. I uh, absolutely love food and cooking. And they were actually trying to convince me because they liked some of my recipes. So together, their entrepreneurship and their whole experience uh, having started their own ISP and, and done other tech work, I had some comfort. In fact, it was my partners that taught me, because I one of the things I said to them is, I don't think starting a business is for me. It's so risky. I can't imagine me being comfortable with that level of risk. And they said, are you crazy? We're the most risk averse folks you're ever going to meet. And that's because we can't afford to make one wrong step. We, we analyze everything. To the, you know, we take all the available data, we look at it really hard, and we try to make the most calculated informed decision because we can't afford to just wing it. You know, we don't have the budget to do that. And that actually very early on has always informed my approach to startups and entrepreneurship. And I do find, I mean, there are, you know, lots of entrepreneurs that kind of wing it. And, and there is this notion that they're they're taking on a lot of risk. But maybe because of my vintage and when I started doing startups, I mean, that first startup, I would have been 40, 42. I was very concerned because I had a family at that point. I was very concerned with making the right decisions. And so I look at entrepreneurship as being as calculated as you possibly can with very little room for margin if you want to be successful. And so... It was kind of an easing into my entrepreneurship and I come at it with maybe with that, you know, 20 plus years of experience from a different way of looking at how you should manage yourself in a startup.
0: Well, you're tapping into two actually well-documented trends, uh, maybe consciously or unconsciously. There's been a lot of research recently, a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, that pointed to how successful founders tended to be more in their 40s, like the batting average is much higher than founders in their 20s. Like the founders in the 20s, maybe they get more of the curve, jumping, home run exits, yada, yada, more press. But the overall batting average is consistently higher if you're in your 40s. Right. Secondly, and I and I believe this, and you articulated it extremely well, is this idea that people have this idea of startups or entrepreneurs or innovators as being risk takers. Again, uh, there's a study I think it might have been like you know the University of Ohio or someplace like that that looked at that you know received wisdom and checked, and what they found out was most successful founders or entrepreneurs were, as you said, aware of the risk. They saw the risk. They knew the risk. They understood the risk and they felt they could overcome it because of their game plan, their pedigree, their education or whatever. Right? So yeah, I mean, it is one of those things. If you want to stay in this, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And often we'll tell young founders you're married to your startup for seven years, right? If you want to be successful, chances are, but you need to look at it through that kind of a lens. Yeah, like do the research, do the homework, find co founders or execs that can offset your weaknesses and your compatibility. And yes, there should be, you know, adult supervision, if necessary, because <laughs> you need to draw upon that expertise. Right. So I mean, you you, you put it really well. And but you know, and it's still a bit of a move, right? Oh, yeah. When were you in New York, by the way, like you mentioned, you're at Barclays in New York. What What, what years were you there?
1: I was in New York, I think I arrived in 90, 95 or 96, and I was there in 2001.
0: Yep, same with me, exactly. The oh, same really? Week. Yep. Ah. Yeah, right, right on the same time, I lived at uh, 43rd and
1: 2nd. Did you really? Mm-hmm. I was at, at first I was at 57 and first, just a kitty corner of the UN, and then I moved yeah. over to Park Slope, yep. uh, and, and still love New York, uh, one of my very favorite cities in the world.
0: Well, the funny thing is, at least pre-pandemic, I'd go back, and it was the same place. Yeah, You know, same place, work work the same way. Like I'm based in Vancouver now. Vancouver changes nightly by comparison. It's just changing really, really, really quickly. Uh, New York, it still kind of works the same way. But but that's an interesting time you were there. And, And do you think actually that location might've been part of your DNA change that made you more ready to take on bigger challenges or riskier undertakings? Because New York is a place that tends to bring that out in people. It's not for the faint of heart. And it challenges you. I always felt challenged just walking out the door in the morning. I felt like today was a challenge because of the tempo and the excitement. And, you know, I came back a different person a few years later. Do you think that location matters in that sense? That was a bit of a crucible for you as a professional?
1: It could have been. I mean, so I grew up in London, Ontario, and then I went to school out here in the east. My first job was just, you know, north of Toronto, did my MBA, moved to Toronto. Then I moved to Tokyo And then I moved to New York and it wasn't, I'm not going to, I don't want to attribute it too much to New York itself, but again, this willingness, I find in myself to just kind of seek out uh, new challenges, you know, uh, probably what really forged it was, you know, moving to Tokyo, I spent a year there with Royal Bank, but I moved to, you know, a city in a country where I didn't speak the language at all. I had no idea what to expect. And I came out of it going, that was a great experience. And mm-hmm. it really it took me to, you know, rather than returning home to Toronto, it's like, okay, what's next? And and then it was New York. And it, whether it was a, a turning of the tide or just, a, I think for me, more of a layering on all of that, you know, that I went through commercial, corporate, investment banking, I went Toronto, Tokyo, New York by the time i arrived here in st john and was doing the corporate thing i was more than willing to take on a challenge and so i became you know less concerned about what i was going to do and more interested in doing what i thought i might be quite good at mm-hmm. and and just work really hard at uh, you know the relationships and developing the network and i think that Overall, I mean, again, it's, I think it plays into people I don't think would identify, you know, people closest to me wouldn't consider me a risk taker They they would probably describe me as far more calculating. And I think that whole journey for me is just incremental. It's been incremental to get to this place. No, you know, big catharsis, no, okay, I'm going to throw it all up and take off. Every change has just been incremental enough. But I've gone from starting at a uh, small bank north of Toronto to uh, doing a startup almost thirty years later.
0: So let me ask you a question, Stephen, if, if I may. You ever tried rock climbing, like climbing rock faces, things like that?
1: I haven't done. Well, I, I've certainly tried it. I wouldn't call what what I've done. You know, on those on the rock walls, I've tried it and I've I've enjoyed it. But my sporting activities are probably a little bit more extreme than my personal corporate. Well, because it strikes me that you'd be
0: very good at rock climbing because the whole rock climbing psychology or technique is you get three hands and feet. There's always three points on the rock and one reaching for the next. And that strikes me as the way you've tackled your career. It's like, yes. you didn't just throw everything, sell the house, grab the kids, move to Japan. You said, okay, I'm going to calculate this. I'm going to go with RBC, yeah. corporate relocation. Therefore, I've got three quarters normal, one quarter new. Yeah. You know, and then you move from point to point, place to place. So you're always in a new situation, but you have enough of a foundation piece that you wrestle with the new and not wrestle with everything at once. You know, you're, you're wrestling with the thing that's new and the other stuff you've already got kind of figured out. And I think that is a, a really good philosophical approach for founders and for entrepreneurs and innovators, because the world is big and complicated and you need to move from a position of strength to strength. You know, it's like a chess Mm -hmm. game. You build positions and move from positions. You don't just fire everything downrange and hope something hits, you know? Yeah. Uh, So in that sense, it's kind of a good strategy, really.
1: Well, well it is. And, and, you know, I, I like your description of rock climbing. Now, it's not that much different. I use, for me, my sort of sports analogy. You know, there's lots of them, but I have done judo for more than half my life. But that's exactly the same thing, which is you know you're not necessarily the biggest, strongest, the fittest, but you always need to be strategic, and you've got to be cautious on your attacks. You've got to be good in your defense, and you know all the sports metaphors. You know we use them in so many ways, but it's always finding that place where you can feel like you're fighting from strength mm-hmm. and playing to that, and be very cautious if you want to win the battle.
0: This podcast is being brought to you by the folks at Shred Capital. At Shred Capital, we're looking for ferocious startups and fearless founders that are taking their first or ideally their second swing at a game-changing new venture. We provide business optimization consulting. We provide non-dilutive financing. We provide a shoulder to cry on, and we want to lead, seed, or syndicate your first equity investment. So check us out, Shred Capital. That's at ShredCapital.com or Shred Capital at any of your favorite social media platforms. So you've gone from crucible to crucible in these different walks of life, finding the connecting pieces, right? So there's a journey there. It's consistent. It makes sense. It's not like radical departure from radical departure. And now you find yourself running a startup, which is scary, whether you're in Silicon Valley or St. John, New Brunswick, right? (laughs) There There's scary things about running a startup, but you're in St. John, New Brunswick as an executive, as a co-founder. Does it make you feel sometimes a little nervous about your proximity to capital, your proximity to talent, your proximity to clients, like those are the three big things for startup success. Mm -hmm. Does it ever worry you that, hey, we're a little bit off the beaten path here? How do you compensate for that? Or is that even something to keep you awake at night? Does
1: it keep me awake? But it is a very fair question. And in fact, in the seed round that we did, it was co-led by a Seattle investor and they specifically asked the question, well, I should say they beat around the question with us, but we heard that when they were checking references, they specifically asked folks if they thought we were at a disadvantage by being St. John. So it would be naive for me to ignore it, and it might be a little bit of pride when I say it's not something that keeps me up or bothers me. But I say that because it's a little bit more from a practical standpoint. Might it be easier somewhere else? I don't really know because I've done all my startup work since you know moving to Saint John, New Brunswick, and so I'm I'm a little bit more used to it now. But there are some advantages. Access to capital isn't one of them, by the way. I would say
0: that
1: (laughs) access to capital continues to be my greatest, uh, what I would say, criticism. When I talk to folks in the ecosystem here and. And we have incubators here in the East Coast, and they often say, what can we be doing better? And I have for 20 years pounded the drum. We need access to capital. We need better access to capital here without a doubt. So that is an advantage. But what I will tell you is an advantage is that if you can get the capital, once you have access to the capital, there there are some big advantages to being here. So other than, you know, there's cost of living, right? So it's a little bit cheaper for James and I to do what we do here than it is maybe... If we were in Toronto, Silicon Valley, Boston, you name it, there is a Vancouver. uh, There is an advantage to being Saint John, New Brunswick, in terms of cost. The other thing that we have found is access to talent has never been a challenge. So before I started working with James, his previous startup, I was actually chairman of the board for him, and he had no problem finding talent and training it. and the And the reason. And this really comes from James's approach to this, and we've adopted it in a big way here at Trojai, which is we're less concerned with, let's say, the experience and the pedigree of the individual. We spend a lot of time trying to find individuals that have the talent and skill set we need so that they can succeed with us here. So, you know, when we first started looking at our computer vision uh, solution, yeah, it might have been great if we could find someone with a decade of computer vision, you know, right here in St. John. But what was more interesting is to find someone that could solve the problem that we're going to be facing in computer vision, and they had all the skill sets. And we found uh, a few of those individuals to help us. It takes a little bit more work, and you have to spend some time getting to know the people you're looking at, but we think we have no problems attracting the talent to work with us. And and then you layer in our, our new pandemic world, which really had stripped away. Now, now we had been thinking about this and, and James had done it with his previous startup, but you know, what really layered in is there are now very few boundaries to us hiring anyone, anywhere that we wanna work with. Again, it just takes effort to work with them and make sure they're gonna be successful part of your team. So I'm not worried about accessing talent And the other good thing, you know, I hate to say it this way, but the other good thing about the pandemic is the clients that we're going after, they don't necessarily expect us to, you know, show up on their doorstep and pitch. And so for a startup, that actually was a huge benefit. It saved us, you know, the cost of travel and we still had the credibility we needed. It didn't matter that we were on the East Coast of Canada. That was, you know, we were just fortunate. We didn't obviously wouldn't create that uh, good luck. We just fell into it. So Other than access to capital, I love working at a St. John, New Brunswick.
0: There you go. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the the pandemic is the obvious recalibrator of a lot of things. And instead of making the world bigger because you can't get to places all of a sudden. So how do you talk to an investor in Seattle, for example? uh, I think you're right. It did make the world more intimate because no one expects you to figure that part out anymore. A Zoom call is just as valid now. Yeah. Or maybe not quite, but almost. Almost. As valid as a face-to-face meeting. Now that may roll back a bit. But I don't think it's going to roll back all the way. It used to be very much perceptive, well, why are you not here kind of thing, as opposed to now where you can do a lot more. And even with the talent, again, it, it really has changed things. I know that just before things hit, like just before things hit, we had a person on our team come to us and make a very eloquent case for why they wanted to relocate, not that far away, but you know, far enough, they'd be remote. And we kind of angsted about it a bit and wrestled with it a bit. And then literally a month later, we told everybody, you're remote now, go home. And guess what? It all worked. Yeah. Like, you know, what was trepidatious and, you know, a little alarming turned out to be something that was the new normal and, you know, in some ways great. And and maybe that's kind of the bigger overall lesson from this is that the things that kind of give you grief or anxiety or whether it's rational or irrational, once you overcome them, once you push through, can often lead to better things, better outcomes. I'm not sure if your fear of the dark (laughs) turned into that, but certainly I think in the business sense, you push through a lot of stuff and realize, you know what? This is great. This is fine. I can be here and work this way and have this kind of lifestyle and still work on legit cutting edge problems with legit cutting edge partners.
1: Yeah, you're right. Whether it was the fear of the dark, I mean, it's easy to fit a lot of things into that in hindsight. But when the pandemic hit, and let's be fair, there, there, there was this irrational fear that having staff work remote was going to be more challenging. And it was somewhat irrational because we all bought into it. Right there's hardly a corporation willing to push its workforce into remote until it had to do it, and now we learned that that was just one more irrational fear, one of those things that we all got taught in biz school how to build teams, what's important, and and then it it got debunked because we were forced to do it. Even on the investment side, uh, uh, early on in the pandemic, we just started our fundraising for our first pre-seed raise, and we were talking to investors. I remember one investor saying to us. Well, you know, we really like, you know, what you guys are doing, but until we can meet face to face, we're not going to do a deal. Well, we never ever did a deal with them. I don't know if they're still in business because, you know, if you're going to adopt that attitude that, you know, we don't invest in companies we can't meet, our round, our two co-investors, we've yet to meet them in person. We're hoping because it was a great deal and we're really happy, but we still do Zoom calls with them and we've yet to meet them in person.
0: So maybe what we all need is just the rationality of the rock climber. (laughs) <laughs> Three things that are known, one thing that's unknown, and you force way through, and eventually you hit the top of the peak. Listen, Stephen, it's been a pleasure. Like, really interesting to hear about your perspective and the success you folks are having at Troj.ai. We're going to drop that in the comments below for people that are listening, so to check out what you folks are doing. Can't wait to circle back, you know, maybe next year and see kind of where you folks have landed.
1: Happy to do so. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for reaching out, and uh, yeah, happy to do a follow-up.
0: No problem, no problem. Be good.
1: Yeah, likewise
0: so I, I gotta say mike the one thing that stuck out with me the absolute craziest risk is people don't go for this pizza stuff do they like that wood fired pizza stuff no one eats pizza right that, that can't be a market <laughs> i guess i guess i guess it is Wow, well who know i gotta try this this, this one time okay there you go so what, what did you think of our friend what did you think of steve i i, I thought it was quite a surprising conversation did not expect it that's exactly the way it did
2: Yeah, it's so interesting because he seems like such a positive, eyes wide open kind of guy and I think that that served him incredibly well over the course of his career and it seems like he doesn't have a lot of barriers to seeing his own abilities and, you know, he tells stories about, hey, I just got bored of this and was interested in this so I decided to do it and did it to the fullest degree and then I moved all around the world doing those things and I ended up in New Brunswick and all these different opportunities. And I just kept saying, yes, is kind of what it seems like. And he kept creating success. And I can't help but think that part of that is the optimism at which he saw it and the trust in himself and the ability to make those things a success because he seems like he's batting a 1,000.
0: Yeah. When you hear him talk, his delivery, as a matter of fact, you can kind of see the dad khaki pants, right? You know, the unoffensively colored blue shirt right? So it doesn't fit the archetype of the hoodie wearing, too cool for school, contemporary pattern that we're seeing here in 2022, right? Very different kind of guy. But like you said, when you, need, when you look the results, some people are able to pull it off and they don't need all the artifice. They don't need the image. They don't need the cool parties in the valley to make them feel like they're part of the movement. They don't really care. They're actually actually doing the work. They're getting it done. And that, I think that's kind of refreshing. I mean, that no ecosystem has avoided this. Whether you're in Silicon Alley, Silicon Valley, you know Miami these days. Good lord, the hype! But maybe there is something to be said for being a, a little further off the beaten path. You, you don't have those distractions. You know, you actually, just focus on building the business. That ostensibly that is that's what all this is all about, isn't it?
2: yeah i mean i think in a lot of ways he goes against the archetype that you view of what a startup founder quote unquote looks like these days both in terms of location in terms of his career his vintage all those sorts of things and even just the location that he's in as you mentioned and i think there's something really refreshing about that Also, obviously, the effects of the pandemic mean that, you know, remote work or hiring people who are further away or trying to do at least some of the early legwork in terms of raising money you can do from these remote locations. And there's something really exciting about the opportunities that that then provides for so many other people who might not be in those, quote unquote, cool or hot locations for start communities.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, hey, look to ourselves, Producer Mike. Uh, we've, we've been trending a bit more to the atypical founders in the show. The people that are coming from a different place, maybe more corporate, maybe a bit older, maybe European. You know, maybe, maybe for the next series of these, uh, these pods, what we should do is well, let's just go after some of the real, the real fresh faced people, fresh out of whatever they're coming from, extra on the young side, extra on the hype side, and talk about where they're coming from.
2: Well, conversely, I mean, the, the interesting thing is we haven't we been seeking out these atypical founders? These are sort of just as we reach out to founders, this is what shows itself. So maybe what that really points to is this sort of archetypal founder. The way that we view it is really a fallacy. Ah,
0: wouldn't that would not be interesting? Wouldn't that be interesting? But you know, if that's the case, what what will Wired Magazine do? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? So we'll look on that note. Thank you, for joining us. thank you for hearing from our guests. Hopefully it gives you quiet inspiration and an appreciation for confidence because you know, those things never go out of style. I'm that Toner, totally. My gross, my producers, thank you so much for listening. Check out the rest. They're all actually pretty good and reasonably competent. Take care. Okay, so that does it for the day. The pod is done, I want to thank our guest, I want to thank our producer Mike in the control room for all of his thoughts and his feedback and his wisdom, and of course, his technical skills. That's what makes all this happen. Our podcast is What Freaks Out Founders, where we explore not just the good stuff, but especially the bad stuff, the anxieties, the neuroses, those things that go bump in the night, and not just for the founder, but for the investor and in our experience that's true whether you're in silicon valley you're in new york you're in berlin or you're in saskatoon it's these common shared things that we're all working really hard to overcome so check us out online wherever good podcasts are found and if you want to check out our sponsors at shred capital at shredcapital.com they can be found online and on all your favorite social platforms shred capital tweets shred capital shares and shred capital supports so hopefully they work for you hopefully you come back to the next episode And if you have an idea or maybe an especially neurotic founder that you'd like us to talk with, we hope you get in touch. Have a great day.